You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. I'll uh, introduce myself as the uh, Democracy, Human Rights and Governance Lead at RIWI. I work with the International Development Team particularly on issues, you know, revolving, uh, author- involving authoritarian contexts, uh, as well as uh, human rights concerns, um, and generally, uh, yeah, more, more broader governance-based issues. Uh, Lauren, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I'm so excited to be here today. Um, my name is Lauren. I'm a project leader at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, which is based out of Concordia. We're a think tank that focuses on a variety of issues at the intersection of human rights and technology. Um, Starting in October, we got funding from the Department of Canadian Heritage to run a one-year project called the Digital Peace Project. Um, The goal of this project was to kind of do a little bit of research and engage certain groups that are disproportionately targeted by online harms into some solution finding exercises. So we are also very excitingly had partnered with Riwi um, to do the survey that we're going to be talking about today. Fantastic. And so just uh, kind of the layout of, of the, the session here is we'll go through a bit of a bit of a global landscape, look at uh, this issue broadly, and then we'll dive into the Canadian specific data that we've collected over two waves of this survey. So in terms of the global landscape, uh, it is unfortunately not the uh, rosiest of landscapes when we're talking about online harms and particularly who's often targeted by these harms uh, and, and those perpetrating it. And so we've known for you know close to a decade now that the online space fundamentally reflects uh, patriarchal and misogynistic uh, offline spaces as well. Unfortunately, there's some key characteristics of the online space that that really amplify and, and create whole new uh, hosts of issues. Uh, and so, just briefly, in 2016, the Guardian did a review of over 70 million comments across their articles. And they found that those most, the comments that targeted most uh, the authors with abuse, uh, eight of those were women and the two men in the sample uh, were black men. And so really that was just the tip of the iceberg and people realizing that people in various professions writing uh, about a whole host of issues like this includes you know, sports writing, stuff that you might not think would be politicized or subject to vitriolic attacks uh, wasn't necessarily the case. And then fast forwarding really to 2023, uh, you know, going over a whole uh, host of issues I was there. But what we're seeing now is really this factor into very key issues, like even being able to assess data f- about online harms and social harms in uh, gender diverse spaces. So academics who are looking into LGBTQ studies are trying to conduct data collection on this, are subjected to manipulation and harassment. The studies authors and designers themselves are often targeted. And if they're trying to engage with study participants and share that type of uh, the data collection tools uh, through social media, let's say, uh, their data is subjected to, yeah, uh, bot uh, attacks, trolling attacks, and essentially creates undue burden and an increase of resources that's needed to even just to collect data on these issues. Essentially, the combination of misogynistic attacks and anti-democratic behavior, so how, to tor- how authoritarians and authoritarian contexts really start to uh, utilize uh, misogyny and, and gender, uh, non-binary gender uh, communities uh, in order to advance political goals uh, or to undermine democratic aims more broadly. 
So unfortunately, globally, we're seeing uh, these trends hold. Uh, in 2020, uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit conducted a pretty wide-scale survey and really found that 85% of women online uh, reported witnessing uh, or experiencing violence against other women. Uh, you know, the personal attacks specifically were about 38% of the sample. Uh, and overall, there are some age uh, characteristics around those who um, actually experienced that. So we're seeing younger people more at risk of this. Um, Lauren, would you like to share how this kind of reflects with your research that you've been conducting? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of times you kind of hear this term online harms and you might think, what does that mean? What does that include? And it really includes a wide variety of actions that happen online, like cyber stalking, cyber bullying, non-consensual sharing of intimate images. There's deep fake porn, um, just harassment, uh, the you know general direct threats of violence. And each of these have a really uh, serious consequences on the ability for people to feel safe online, to feel comfortable sharing their opinions and participating in civic spaces. And um, as I think we can see with these statistics, uh, there is a lot of that is targeting women. It's also targeting women leaders. Um, and when we're looking at online hate against women, it can feel incredibly personal. It can often extend um, into the family life. We at MIGS ran a project in 2021 called the Canadian Women Leaders Digital Defense Initiative, where we interviewed a ton of women in politics and journalism, generally in the, in the limelight um, across the country. And we heard so many stories of being harassed, of being stalked. We heard one story of one former journalist whose children, there was threats of sexual violence against her children. So it can be incredibly personal and um, yeah, it can have a really serious impact on your ability to feel comfortable and your ability to enjoy being on the internet. So there's a 125 country survey found that 81% of black women journalists and 86% of indigenous ones, 64% of white ones all said that they had experienced online violence. Uh, the rate of online violence experienced by lesbian and bisexual respondents were 88% and 85%, which is super high, um, respectively compared to 72% of heterosexual women. Uh, only 22% of electoral management bodies are chaired by women and digital aggression in the form of humiliation, devaluation of work, instigation to violence, intimidation, and threats further serve to discourage participation. So I think those are some really interesting statistics about the impact of professions. Um, and when we're looking at how these attacks kind of relate to women, like we we're talking about in the previous slide, um, they're kind of and their intent is to frame women as untrustworthy, unintelligent, too emotional, sometimes sexualized. And most disturbingly, we can see online that these attacks are carried out with malign intent and some level of coordination amongst the perpetrators. Um, and when we're talking about the impacts of people in the public eye, um, again, it's really amplified due to the anonymity that the Internet makes you feel like you have, um, that you can say things to people you wouldn't say in person because it seems really low stakes because uh, you're, you're anonymous. Um, extreme content gets far more views, which kind of keeps you on the platform longer. So it's in the platform's best interest to do that. Um, as this relates to women leaders, this can have a silencing effect that discourages their participation in public places, which obviously has um, the potential to jeopardize gender equality and representation within democratic institutions. Misogyny doesn't exist in a vacuum, and it's often the symptom of something way larger wrong in the political environment. 
Um, recently, there was a Canadian Journalist for Free Expression Gala, and one of the three women honored was given an award for calling out misogynistic online abuse and, and her courageous reporting. Yeah, all extremely uh, important points to, to point out. I'll, I'll just add um, one of the uh, one of the other three journalists, Rachel Gilmore, who also received that uh, Canadian Journalist for Free Expression Award. Basically, um, she was um, laid off from Global News just simply due to financial constraints. And as she is then uh, putting her email, personal email ad address out there to essentially have professional development opportunities, uh, there have been uh, individuals who have started taking out escort ads and directing that type of content to her personal email address. So the compounding nature of essentially these anonymous individuals, like you said, Lauren, is almost unbelievable in times and it would be unless you actually start uh, discussing and hearing these anecdotes and, and, and you know, actually listening to these, these women and non-binary individuals who are experiencing this directly. So, of course, the social political impacts of this are, are quite broad uh, to terms women, people of color, two-spirit and LGBTQ plus from participating in electoral processes or even in the management of electoral processes, discourages journalists from covering specific issues or topics or using social media to advance their career. And as Erica pointed out, even when you choose to avoid specific topics or to not comment on things, it actually isn't preventing that uh, online abuse and online harms that come. So it's really uh, not an effective strategy. It, it, you would assume it would have a deterring effect, but that's not actually the case because these individuals are personally targeted uh, for, uh, yeah, um, really reasons of other individuals' uh, own personal satisfaction or lack thereof. Um, this creates extreme burdens on those who seek leadership roles in media and political organizations. Seen multiple um, um, female politicians, you know, resign or 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 shorten their tenure uh, due to what they call is just yeah a, a litany of online abuse. Catherine McKenna, who you worked with, Lauren, on a variety of projects, who is the former Canadian Environmental Minister, has uh, well experienced that. Um, and then it impacts mental and physical health and can result in offline violence. And so there's a ton of data points out there that show that those most subjected to it online uh, also see off offline consequences. Okay, now I'm going to just lob questions towards Lauren and get her reflection on this, and we'll go through some of these findings. But Lauren, what's your, your thoughts on you know, uh, essentially personally offensive content being, you know, slightly lower in terms of what people characterize as, as hate speech. Yeah, I was really glad to see that less uh, people wanted to, wanted to click personally offensive content as part of the definition of hate speech. Uh, the other three options that we provided were a better match for the actual definition of hate speech, both the UN's and, and in Canada. So, um Again, it wasn't quite as low as I wanted. Like they were more, they're definitely more equal than I thought. And I think what we're seeing with that is we're seeing some of the tension between protecting the right to freedom of expression and protecting uh, people from online hate and harassment. Um, I think part of the beauty of the internet, whenever it was conceived, maybe was that it connects you with people that have different ideas and can grow your worldview. But it also means that you're going to come into contact with information that you might not like or don't agree with or might offend you but doesn't necessarily meet the definition of hate speech in that it doesn't incite violence, it doesn't incite hatred, and it's not dehumanizing. So 
For example, I think someone could say that women belong in the kitchen and I would not enjoy reading that and I might find it personally offensive and I might even give it a thumbs down, but it doesn't incite hatred or violence and it isn't in and of itself dehumanizing. So overall, I'm happy to see that it's lower because it does match the, the proper definition that we are using for hate speech. Potentially a point of, you know, future programming for just even education around the definition and, you know, uh, yeah, basically, um, yeah, giving more of an educational approach to uh, these definitions might be beneficial in the Canadian context. Mm-hmm. Great. So, yeah, this is uh, basically uh, we ask people what common reasons they might be. You can select up to three that people actually experience this. And I just wanted to get your opinion, Lauren, on how this tracks with kind of other research we're seeing around how people selected the, yeah, particularly the identity reasons why people might be targets of hate speech. Yeah, I thought this question uh, turned out really great. Uh, When we were designing the project, we kind of wanted to focus on three grounds for discrimination that we thought uh, were most common. And what we decided and what we decided to design the roundtables that we're hosting on was uh, women, someone who identifies as 2SLGBTQI+, race and ethnicity as a grounds, being being a member of an indigenous Métis or First Nations community, and religious identity. And so as we can see, kind of the top ones that people selected really also line up with with our educated guests. Um, They also do match other research on groups that are disproportionately targeted by hate speech. I've got just a couple examples here. I think there was a two-week period in May 2021 where the Anti-Defamation League saw 17,000 tweets that centered on the theme Hitler was right. Um, And I don't think that anyone has to spend a super long time on Twitter before you see online hate Um, in the comments that focuses on gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, or religion. It's pretty, pretty prevalent. Um, Also in 2021, Stats Canada issued a report on uh, police reported hate crimes. So obviously that's far narrower because people have to report them to the police, but uh, they found that hate crimes targeting black and Jewish populations remained the most common types of hate crimes, representing 18 and 16% of all police reported hate crimes, respectively. Um, And hate crimes targeting sexual orientation accounted for 14% of all hate crimes. Last was a multi-year analysis that shows victims of police reported hate crimes uh, that targeted sexual orientation in the indigenous population tend to be the youngest among hate crime victims, and they unfortunately sustain the highest rate of injury. Right, so it looks like Essentially, people's online experience both mirrors the offline experience in how it's reported to police, but that also people are essentially seeing uh, the the specific targets as the other data bears that out. So they are, yeah, unfortunately witnessing witnessing an accurate representation uh, of why people are targeted. And so disaggregated data has some power to really dive deeper down into how we design online spaces and essentially what people's perspective of freedom of speech or just, you know, comfort in in all opinions being shared. And so just, yeah, off the bat, you'll see, you know, the vast majority, almost 75 percent of folks will uh, agree or strongly agree that the Internet should be a place where everyone can feel comfortable sharing their opinions. 
Uh, and then when we start disaggregating that further, we really start to see that necessarily that's not the case and that there's uh, a high percentage of non-binary folks strongly disagreeing with this. Uh, and so, yeah, Lauren, um, what do you think uh, these results kind of tell us about people's online experiences and how it differs across genders? Yeah, I think if I were to think of just asking random people on the street if they felt like people should feel safe online, a majority of people, I think, would say, yes, I, I agree with that. Um, and that would kind of indicate a high level of confidence and appreciation for freedom of speech online and a general desire for platforms to be encouraging spaces. But I think when we look at the disaggregated data, um, it does definitely get interesting. And I think the disparities we're seeing between, you know, like the non-binary, particularly the male um, respondents kind of corresponds with how comfortable these groups are at uh, being online kind of at the moment. Um, I think what the non-binary folks here are saying is like, hey, when people feel that comfortable sharing their opinions online, they're a little too, dis they're a little too comfortable um, discriminating against me and people like me and spreading hate, et cetera. So I think that's coming from a, a lived experience of being the targeted, the target of someone else's freedom of expression online. Yeah, yeah, really well said. So what we're seeing is an online space where yeah, uh, people feeling comfortable uh, has a direct correlation with the dehumanizing effect that that has on other folks. Great. So on to the next question here. Um, and that question is, do you agree or disagree? Um, Lauren, you want to read out what the question is? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I feel comfortable expressing my opinions online without fear of being attacked. Um, so these results made a lot of sense to me. Um, it's not surprising that men have a more optimistic view of sharing opinions online and feeling safe doing so, because I think uh, the large proportion of hate we see online is perpetrated by male users. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the victims that we're seeing are women or members of the LGBTQI plus community. So if you're if you aren't going to feel comfortable expressing yourself online, if you have a lived experience dealing with hate, and I think that's that's kind of evident there, the online Space doesn't exist, again, in a vacuum, and what we see on it is often just an amplified version of what we see offline. So I think these stats are a good indication of how non-binary folk and, and women feel expressing themselves in public places and participating in civic spaces. Yeah, really mm -hmm. well said. Yeah, I think why uh, just kind of a writ large call for freedom of expression really is is essentially only a portion of the conversation and how, you know, those who are often making that call to like, yeah, free accession should trump all other uh, considerations when we're looking at moderation or online hate speech. Yeah, those calls are, are likely coming from those folks who uh, directly aren't targets of that, uh, of those negative uh, opinions online. What does this kind of like say us about uh, how platform design or, or maybe even those designing these platforms or how that might impact uh, where they're uh, directing resources to, you know, um, essentially, uh, yeah, controlling for these types of issues online. Yeah, I definitely think it kind of, it definitely has some uh, points to the platforms and the algorithms they use to promote content and also to content moderate. Um, so I think if you have, you know, a group of all white males on a table, you're maybe not building a platform or you're not writing algorithms that are going to make um, indigenous or Hispanic or black users feel safe and feel protected online. Um, and, and those algorithms are not, 
they're not non-biased. They, they're definitely built with bias in them. And I think that's what we're seeing with these statistics. Yeah, absolutely agree on that front. Okay, so next question uh, is around, do you think content moderation? So we're going to be getting into how we should moderate these spaces then. Yeah, I think I was a, a little surprised by these findings the first time I saw it. I think at first glance, you'd think that people who frequently experience online hate, online harms might be uh, pro-increased content moderation. And their rejection of that could definitely be from maybe being jaded on the effectiveness of content moderation or the design and the algorithms that go into it. Um, but I think it's largely due to kind of the over-moderation of these groups, they receive you know large amounts of hate online, but also when they're talking about their own identity or causes they support and care about, their content is repeatedly flagged by the notice and takedown method, um, in which like an AI or an algorithm uh, flags content based on keywords. And again, those those algorithms are biased. Um, they might you know things like Black Lives Matter or anything to do with being Muslim has been proven to be flagged um, for takedown far more and that over moderation impacts your ability to feel safe expressing yourself online. Um, again, that the AI kind of only picks up on keywords. They might not understand the context or the nuance of those conversations um, leading to their being kind of misconstrued or triggering the involvement of law enforcement. Yeah, that's really well said. Uh, the only thing I'll add to that is also we see the weaponization of content moderation essentially through users reporting uh, yeah, information that they may disagree with them. So similar to well, you have trolling of, of research into these harms, you'll have people essentially trolling by mass piling on reporting of, you know, uh, a marginalized community expressing their either experience or their disgust with the, the current reality that they're facing and then are having their accounts at least temporarily frozen because of a mass reporting or having content taken down. And so it's, it's very, I think, key uh, to, to look at these findings and to realize that just increased moderation writ large is not going to solve the problem. And we really need to start thinking much more intelligently and also how these uh, moderation tools are used in practice, like you said. And so we just have uh, four more uh, slides here from, from the survey results. Uh, they're, they're not disaggregated because the results were within a couple percentage points of another. And this is talking around who should be responsible for moderation. So uh, I just kept them uh, in the general respondents category. Uh, but what it really does show us is what specific bodies people feel uh, that they trust or lack thereof uh, in terms of this. So. Um, Lauren, and this is social media platforms performing content moderation. What do you think people's responses to not really entire or or actually you know a bit higher than our other responses in trusting social media companies to perform this moderation? Yeah, I definitely I was maybe a little bit surprised that um, they got thirty four percent for entirely in charge. Um, but I think the high percentage of the somewhat response was uh, maybe people not understanding how social media platforms do it. And then they're like, I'm not sure, like it might be okay. I don't know. I think it's a, it's a lack of confidence or maybe an uneasiness or a general, I don't understand how it works about the notice and takedown method. Um, I do, again, I think, you know, the social media platforms are, are in there and they're the ones designing the algorithms, but 
Um, on, the, on the flip side, like, do you want social media companies to be the providers and enforcers of your rights? And maybe in some places where your your government, your federal government is more strict, you might you might want that. It might actually give you more freedoms or give you more protections like human rights defenders. Um, but in some places, it might be more restrictive. And so I think, yeah, it's definitely an interesting one, given what we kind of previously saw. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, uh, federal government. Uh, this is how involved this should the federal government be. So we do see a higher percentage increase and not at all going from 22% to 25%. So yeah, this is the uh, social media platforms. And then now this is federal government. So we're going from 25 to 22, but some oversight people are starting to see. So yeah, it's still similar higher percentages for somewhat, um, but you can see that the politicization of content moderation really shows that people are trusting the federal government way less to perform these services. Yeah, this didn't surprise me at all. I think generally that the the high percentage of somewhat is definitely not surprising given the variety of opinions post the handling of COVID. Um, tons of people maybe weren't that happy or didn't feel that confident with the way the federal government shared information online. Was it accessible? Was it easy to understand? Do they know really enough about how the internet works to be in charge of of moderating it or, or developing legislation? And on the other side, I think there's a, also a lot of people who felt like it was too much from the federal government, that there's too many restrictions. And so as you know, the federal government is, is working on the, the C-11 bill, I think it'd be really um, interesting to note a couple of these hesitations and a couple of what what people want. Um, assuming that people groups that are targeted want content moderation, I think is, is the largely the assumption. But there's tons of groups who feel like it'll restrict their rights, and I think that's what you're seeing with the federal government responses. Yeah, really, uh, really good point. And so, yeah, the the final question on content moderation here is on the third party oversight bodies. Um, And we're seeing the highest uh, support for some oversight. And so I really think that this, you know, has some uh, value in terms of maybe consortiums or coalitions of folks who have multiple, you know, both uh, community informed, um, um, you know, users or participants, uh, and are kind of a hands off from the government and from the social media platforms themselves may be one of the easier uh, kind of content moderation vehicles that could be accepted uh, kind of by the general public. And this comes from the Monetizing Misogyny Report, and we'll just finish with it, that really globally-minded legislative frameworks, as we're seeing in those responses to who should be responsible, is we kind of need broader third-party options. We, we can't rely on individual federal governments for a variety of reasons to really be the main driving force. You know, one reason is just that they don't have a lot of political support in doing that, and there's partisanship that can really muddy that process. Um, and yeah, we, similar to how we saw G, the GDPR or the Digital Services Act come from the EU, there are trickle-down effects for when we pass legislation that has broad encompassing uh, yeah, uh, issues for uh, whether it's online tracking, um, data collection, or just you know digital or yeah, basically using of the digital space. It's important to think a bit more uh, uh, transnational in, in that regard. Last mm-hmm. question here. Uh, wondering uh, about your ideas on how the I- ideal moderator would look like if it's not the government or the actual platforms. It definitely looks like a challenging role. Uh, but yeah, what are, what are your thoughts, Lauren? Yeah, that is a, a tough question. It's way easier to tear things apart than to put them back together. But um, I think that 
um, kind of a, a better blend is probably what's required. I think the Facebook Oversight Board, um, despite its flaws, is a really interesting experiment into kind of what the third party would look like. I definitely think we, there's definitely some improvements that tech platforms need to do. It's their product. They can content moderate it a little bit better. There's obviously that really huge failing of the Rohingya. Um, if you've got, you know, AI moderating and you've got no human reviewers that speak the local language, they're not going to be able to flag that content as um, inciting violence, which the continent in Myanmar definitely did. Um, so I think that that the and I think the data also shows that people really want the human reviewer to have a more significant role in content moderation than it does, which is obviously a manpower problem. Um, but yeah, I would definitely, definitely say that. And I would definitely say, I think we need to explore sort of the Facebook oversight model a little bit more. Um, it might not work, but it is better than what we got going. Lauren, thank you. Thank you so much. I think this was, yeah, a really great discussion. And uh, I'm really excited to see yeah, the final, final reporting that comes out of uh, both this study, but then also all of the focus groups that you have, because I think really that is that qualitative piece uh, that, will, that will help kind of identify some solutions going forward. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.